Hello and welcome to our first Student Scholar Dialogue, hosted by Emily Laurent Monahan for the Paris Institute. I'm joined today by Dr. Samir Gandesha here in Vancouver, Canada. I will briefly introduce Samir before we begin. An international scholar, Samir Gandesha was born in Nairobi, Kenya and immigrated to Canada with his family in the mid 1960s. Educated in Canada, the United Kingdom, and the United States, Dr. Gandesha is a professor of humanities at Simon Fraser University here in Vancouver, where he serves as the director of the Institute for the Humanities. An engaged writer, Dr. Gandesha has written widely and has edited important volumes on Arendt, Adorno, and Marx. His writing extends beyond academic milieus into the realm of what we might call public philosophy and theory. Thank you for joining me, Samir. Thanks, Emily. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. Great. So let me begin. You have been active throughout the pandemic, and I want to discuss some of the articles and talks that you've put forth. In May 2020, you wrote about the gift of COVID-19, wherein you tease out the association between the German das Gift and the English gift. We've been presented with a poisonous lesson or brutal universalism as you call it, that issues from the shadowy double of philosophical wonder, that is philosophy as traumatic incursion. If the pandemic is a kind of poison gift insofar that the moment of crisis is utterly decisive, would you say that we have allowed ourselves to be sufficiently poisoned? Hmm. Yeah, that's a very provocative way to uh, frame the question. I would maybe turn it around uh, a little bit and um, wonder whether we have adequately received the gift um, in, you know, in the English sense, you know, um, and that means have we really been able to um, consider all the ramifications of the pandemic um, for our present and for our future? I mean, the pandemic has revealed um, many, uh, I think, uh, let's say hidden truths uh, about our society, about our late capitalist order um, that, um, I mean, were certainly known before it struck, um, but were easier to deny. But now it, it, it seems that um, these dimensions are increasingly difficult to deny. And we could talk about uh, a, a wide range of things, everything from uh, policing and, and surveillance through to the, uh, the, uh, the weaknesses that we have in our public health care system, which is admittedly better than that of the United States, but we're seeing the, the problems within the Canadian uh, public health care system, um, the country's inability to, or, or zero capacity for uh, the production of vaccines, which we know we're gonna need um, in the future uh, on an ever greater scale, I think. Uh, this is not just, you know, it, it's not the first pandemic and it won't be the last. How prepared are we for, for future pandemics? Um, we've seen the way in which uh, the pandemic has um, uh, overarchingly and disproportionately affected the most vulnerable members of our society, um, women, uh, uh, racialized communities, indigenous communities. Um, what lessons are we going to learn from this going forward? I think this is really the crucial question. But it's not just one of, you know, theory, which means in its you know original 
um, meaning to look on, um, it doesn't mean this sort of passive uh, observation of the, the contours of the present, but it calls for a kind of intervention because the future in a sense is, um, uh, I mean, to quote Joe Strummer, the future is unwritten. And I think we have to sort of make interventions to um, secure the kind of future that, 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 that we want and that we need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. And in terms of the sort of discourse cluster and these terms that have emerged through the pandemic, I was hoping we could talk about the sort of rhetoric of safety first, which has become a key bookend within university discourse, but also within the sort of pandemic uh, lexicon. And how has the pandemic you know, deepened or perhaps affected the political membrane of the classroom as many of us are, you know, in this online world now. And perhaps you could speak to how online education has affected your thinking about safe space and this language of safety and the necessity to defend a pedagogy that can sort of suffer, to put it dramatically, sort of negativity and otherness and sort of thinking through our time. Okay, yeah, so there was quite a number of questions there. And um, I think, first off, um, we do need to think about safety in a, in a, in a broader sense, obviously, uh, in terms of public health protocols. Um, and I think that this is um, a very urgent uh, matter, isn't it, that we need to make sure that, you know, we are um, following the protocols, we are uh, physically distancing, we're, you know, washing our hands and all the, all those sorts of things, you know, I don't need to go into too much detail about what they are. They are changing, obviously, as, you know, we have, um, you know, various uh, kinds of uh, variants of concern, as they're called, released into, into our ecosystems and so on. Uh, but we more or less know, know what they are. Um, we, we're seeing um, increasingly, uh, kind of challenge to these protocols, um, not uh, from, let's say, the far left, but from the far right, uh, from neo-Nazi organizations, uh, from conspiracy theorists, uh, from, you know, white supremacists. And that leads to all kinds of questions about why this might be. And, you know, that's, I think that's a, a, quite a big discussion. But I think one dimension um, that might tie into some of the other questions that you, you were asking um, could have to do with the way in which safety has been a kind of slogan for the left for a long time now, right? And um, so has the, as I've pointed out in various of my writings and, and interviews and discussions, um, an overinflation of the problem of harm and, a, and an attempt to say that if you offend me by your speech, um, you have done me harm. And I think this is a false equation. So I think what has happened in other words is that you've had a, a situation for the last couple of decades now, if not longer. I mean, I could trace it back to the mid nineties uh, sort of a zero tolerance for offensive speech in classrooms in Ontario, for example. Um, so you, you have a situation in which uh, there's been a lot of crying wolf going on, right? And so now when you really need words to matter and you need people to adhere 
in a very serious way, in an urgent way to, to safety protocols. Mm -hmm. You have the right um, uh, flouting them as they would have challenged, you know, the, this, uh, um, you know, too great an emphasis on, on safety. So I think, you know, that is a dynamic that is, is uh, quite interesting to me. So now let's look at the, the, the situation in the university. Um, I think this is becoming uh, ever more prevalent as we, uh, as, as time goes by with, it seems almost with every week and month and year that passes, there's um, a kind of heightened concern around, um, around safety. Now as an educator, I'm of course aware of the need to create the conditions within the classroom where um, genuinely uh, searching and inquiring uh, questions can be posed and discussions can be forged. Absolutely, there is a relationship here between conditions of safety and the possibility of what one could call, you know, um, somewhat dangerous conversations, mm -hmm. you know, where, I mean, let's face it, education is about taking some risks, putting your most cherished values and beliefs on the line, um, opening them up for critical scrutiny, not least by, by yourself, after you have engaged or in the process of engaging with other viewpoints that are quite different, right? So I think this is, there's a kind of dialectic between the conditions of safety, safe spaces in a sense, and, and the possibility of dangerous conversations. The problem lies in making a fetish out of safety to the point where we lose um, track of what education is about. Education must happen when people feel comfortable to exchange ideas in a robust way, uh, but if safety becomes fetishized to the point where that exchange can no longer happen, we've lost sight of the educational mission of the university. And we're really in danger of that, I think. Uh, and and this, is, um, uh, this has many reasons uh, or there are many causes, it's overdetermined. But one of the things that we cannot forget is the fact that over the last 20, 30 years, um, maybe since the beginning of the so-called neoliberalism, uh, say 40, 50 years ago, uh, the university has been turned into a kind of corporate entity, mm -hmm. which no longer has a relationship with students, but rather with clients, stakeholders, mm -hmm. customers, consumers. And so the consumer, the customer is always right. And if the customer feels offended or uncomfortable, well, then something must be done. So I think this is where we're at. Um, in terms of the online and remote um, setting for, uh, um, you know, uh, for um, pedagogy, for teaching and learning, uh, I think that um, it is mostly uh, detrimental, I think, to a, an authentic exchange of viewpoints and ideas. Mm -hmm. um, I think that there is a lot of anxiety that, that students feel uh, around engaging um, in, in this sort of remote um, uh, setting. And of course, the conditions are, 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 are not um, particularly propitious to, uh, for students to feel comfortable. I mean, we're all a bit on edge. And, and, and professors and TAs 
uh, as you yourself might have experienced this past year, um, there's a, 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 you know, a, a sense of being profoundly um, uh, at, um, you know, uh, prof profoundly unsettled by, by where we're at. However, I do think that the online context can be quite uh, useful in some ways as well, insofar as, and I've done this myself, um, you know, uh, having guest lecturers come uh, and, and, and participate in discussions, do, do a talk, engage with students, uh, and they can be halfway across the world. And I think this is, this is great. Um, and, and I think that, you know, for me, uh, and there's a chance we might come back um, to this point, um, for me, it's really necessary to always have a cosmopolitan perspective on the world, a kind of grounded cosmopolitanism, insofar as one is engaging where one lives and where one calls home, the kind of world in which one exists, but with full awareness and con consciousness of the fact that there are other worlds, there are other contexts, there are other forms of life mm -hmm. um, that are quite radically different from one's own. And so that, in a way, always has this salubrious effect of provincializing everything that one does. And that is really important. And I think in North America, we lose sight of that. We feel that we are, however decolonial we want to be, we're <laughs> at the center of the world. And this can't be the case. Yes, and I think the idea that the pandemic is this ultimate kind of universalism, but in this sort of weak sense that, you know, it binds us all together despite the radical, um, you know, discrepancy between um, the way nations have been able to handle the situation. Um, you might have seen I posted our first dispatches from two fellow students from the Paris Institute from um, the Philippines and Portugal and uh, the sort of situation there have been radically different. Um, Portugal's doing very well currently. The Philippines, as you are aware, is not. So mm -hmm. I think the radical cosmopolitanism in the sense of sort of taking stock of differences is, is essential to the sort of project that I'm involved with, with the student ambassadors. So I appreciate you drawing attention to that. That's and wonderful, yeah. And turning to sort of another bookend of your, your many um, adventures and thought, I was wondering if you could speak to um, the sort of need to, to continue the substantive critique of identity politics that you and others such as Slavoj Žižek and Todd McGowan have launched. Um, why is this a pressing issue for the left specifically? Well, thank you. That, that's. Um... Uh, such an important question and, and one that really deserves a very uh, long and involved answer. But I think I can give you a kind of snapshot of one. And, um, you know, I, I feel very um, flattered to be put in the, the same company as uh, Zizek um, and, and McGowan. Um, I would say that uh, on the one hand, I think it's really important to recognize the contribution of the early uh, theorists of identity politics, yes. the Kambahi River Collective. Mm -hmm. um, the central idea there is that we must be the authors of our own liberation. Mm -hmm. And who's the we? I mean, the we is really the identity of identity politics, mm -hmm. which is to say, you know, um, uh, an African-American feminist lesbian collective mm -hmm. that recognizes 
that um, in the various formations of the left, there's no one that's actually uh, uh, militating for their specific interests. And I think this is really key, right? So that's then developed also into uh, a notion of intersectionality. Um, uh, and I, I think it's a really uh, a, a valuable contribution to look at the different ways in which structures of oppression intersect. However, and, and Asad Haider has pointed this out and others have um, besides, but Haider's book is particularly good in, in looking at the way in which um, it has turned, identity politics has turned from this radical socialist feminist um, transformative project into something that has been taken over by in a very cynical way, um, uh, the kind of managerial class that has administered uh, neoliberalism. You saw that in 2016 with Hillary Clinton and her own use of the, the term intersectionality. You see it now with the, vi the current vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris. Um, and of course, you, you know, what's been floating around in the, in the last while has been this recruiting video made by the CIA. Mm. Uh, which actually also uses the term intersectional. Mm. So it's quite interesting the way this is, has been taken up. And I think, you know, one of, one of my uh, key arguments would be that this can only be possible if you understand, say, class as simply one of many um, uh, modifiers for a given identity, right? So you you uh, you hit um, race, gender, sexual orientation, and so on, and class is included as well. Mm -hmm. But class almost seems <clears throat> incidental. Yes. Um, so rather, you know, and and so unlike those other uh, aspects of of identity, class is something quite different. Insofar as if you think class in a radical way, you think of its abolition, right? Class should be signified and 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 placed in a political struggle, should be, you know, it should center a political struggle that is, you know, in, in a dialectic way, dialectical way, oriented towards the very abolition of class society and therefore class as an identity right that would be the utopian horizon of socialism right a kind of politics of radical equality the the other identity markers um don't don't function in the same way i mean you know you, um your sexual orientation um uh, requires recognition you want that, that to be recognized and valued and that, that's very reasonable obviously right um uh, your racialized identity as well. Um, maybe in a, in a future society that will change radically, but there's still something about your racial identity that you want to, to, to have affirmed. So I think that this kind of uh, misrecognition of the, central, the centrality of a negative understanding of class is what makes it then possible for the Hillary Clintons of this world um, or, or the, you know, the Jagmeet Singhs of this world to use uh, identity in ways that are, are quite politically 
opportunistic. Um, so it's it's not just also I want to make this point that it's it's not just the, the likes of you know myself and 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 Heider and and Zizek and, and and Todd McGowan that are, are raising these criticisms of identity politics. It's also you know the, the kind of prehistory of um, identity politics in in France Fanon. You know if, if you read the Wretched of the Earth, this is a powerful critique of identity politics. A, a politics that's, that's geared uh, to um, to race and nationhood, mm -hmm. and wants to inject class um, into the discussion, and, and it does in a very powerful way. So there's a kind of you know there, there is this prehistory, and this aspect of Fanon is often simply elided because it's 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 uncomfortable or it's inconvenient. Right. Thank you for that. And this brings me to my next question. Why are you in particular poised to launch this critique? I was hoping you might share with us some of your own experiences of identity politics within and outside of the institution. Well, thank you for that. I mean, um, it's uh, uh, something that I, I, I think is, is really important to, um, uh, to register because Otherwise, it looks like what I'm trying to do is, is something very pernicious, mm -hmm. uh, if not downright, you know, reactionary. Um, but my my position is that, like the Combahee River Collective, um, whose uh, theorists, um, who, whose protagonists are speaking from their experiences uh, as uh, racialized uh, women. Um, I also speak from my own, or I, I speak through uh, my own experiences, which I understand to be mediated. They're not, they don't just sort of sit there and speak for themselves, but they're, you know, they're, they're reflected upon uh, conceptually. Um, and, and I think that they're, they're, they're key to, to get across. And to, to be just sort of fairly brief about it, I mean, I come from uh, a, a family uh, with roots in East Africa. Um, my grandparents emigrated from the, the western part uh, of, of northwestern part of, of India, uh, which is um, a, a state called Gujarat. Um, the current pr uh, prime minister of India, Narendra Modi, comes from Gujarat. And uh, so, I mean, I have a good sense of, of where this you know where this government is is coming from in 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 some sense as a, as a result of that. Um, so my my grandparents emigrated to East Africa seeking a better life. I mean it, this is a, a familiar story of of emigration um, of uh, you know self uh, transformation um, of uh, existing in a kind of diasporic way. Um, and I myself was born in, in in Nairobi, and we had family throughout East Africa which used to be called the East African um, Economic uh, uh, Community. So in Tanzania, Uganda, and um, also, uh, of course, Kenya. Uh, my parents arrived, as, as uh, you mentioned in the, the introduction, um, with me in tow uh, as an infant uh, in, in Canada in, in the mid-1960s. But my family that remained behind in Uganda was expelled in 1972. And one of the... Um, justifications for such an expulsion. I mean, you know, this was a kind of uh, um, a matter of 
dictatorship and decisionism. This is, you know, uh, Idi Amin's coup, uh, which then led to various kinds of policies of, of Africanization and of ultimately expelling, you know, the middleman, right? The, you know, the merchant uh, class, which was basically the, the Asians in, in, in that country. So already from a, a very young age, I was quite well aware of the way in which ethno-nationalism can lead to forms of uh, uh, oppression, domination, exclusion, and so on. And then of course, I became aware of the history of the 20th century and I put two and two together and, and you know, things started to, to make a kind of sense to me. At the same time though, I was quite well aware as, uh, in addition of the, um, the, the, the nature of caste in my own community, right? And so caste already suggested to me that within you know, particular communities, there are um, very sharp divisions and there are forms of oppression and domination within those communities. So I think what identity politics seems to do is emphasize the differential relations and hierarchies between communities, right? between identities at the cost of understanding forms of hierarchy within those communities. And I know intersectionality tries to do this, but I think in effect, there is always reference to some larger identity that takes precedence, mm -hmm. right? And within that, or that then becomes a kind of ideological justification for these hierarchies or forms of domination within the communities. So I would say, you know, um, let's always focus not just on difference between identities, but also difference within right. those, um, those identities or within the communities that uh, purport to embody certain forms of, uh, of, of identity. So, I mean, to summarize, uh, very well aware of the domination, uh, you know, um, uh, the, the, the domineering, let's say, and, and oppressive um, role of, of the uh, Amin regime, which in many ways was responding to the absolutely horrific racism of the Asian community to uh, the African community. That is without a doubt, and I want to make very clear, uh, doesn't justify the treatment of, you know, my people, but one can understand it. And that has to be an important dimension of this, of this discussion. Mm -hmm. um, but then one also understands the forms of, you know, of, uh, of domination, not least gender domination mm -hmm. within the, um, within the Asian uh, community, underwritten by, you know, a certain interpretation of Brahminical Hinduism and so on, which we can't get into right now. But this is, what had, you know, this is always at the back, this is always the background or the backdrop to my skepticism uh, of uh, identity politics. Right. Well, thank you for that, um, Samir. And I'm going to try and blend two questions because I think they sort of, you know, work as one. Um, many intellectuals on the left sort of sidestep or short circuit the phenomenon of cancel culture, though you do not. And I'm wondering um, why you think it's so important to address this phenomenon and 
if we could bring this into a sort of psychoanalytic register, why should we problematize the enjoyment that we get from judging other people? Is there a way on the left that we can kind of hold on to critique without passing into this sort of enjoyment or judgment of judging other people that's often extremely tinted by a sort of moralism that we now find um, as quite uh, ubiquitous? Yeah, thank you. Um... Uh, that's a great question. Uh, yeah, I'm, I think I'm probably one of the few um, uh, on the left. Um, I very much consider myself on the left, if, if that hadn't been clear already, um, who, who says, yeah, actually, cancel culture is a thing. And the reason I think that is because there are leftists canceling other leftists. Um, cancel culture is uh, it kind of emerges as a sort of right-wing talking point. Um, to express dismay, to put it mildly, um, when um, conservative speakers, for example, are, are canceled, right. which I actually don't agree with. I mean, I think we need to know, uh, know thy enemy, um, know, know thine enemy. And um, when people like um, Harvey Mansfield, the um, Harvard-based um, political theorists, the theorists of masculinity, uh, also a, a translator and editor of, uh, of, of Machiavelli, is canceled, I think, by Concordia University. This is a big problem. We can disagree with the Harvey Mansfields of this world. We must. We must challenge their views and, and take them to task. But um, nobody is served by having people like that canceled. Um, so, yeah, I, th I think... It, it is emerged as a right-wing talking point, um, but uh, you know it, it's not as if the right can't be correct occasionally. Just as a broken clock is right twice a day, uh, and so um, I think there's this worry that oh, if 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 I use this language and I align myself uh, with the right, I'm taken to be a, a conservative um, or what have you. Um, that might be the case if you don't actually provide reasons and, and evidence um, examples for your view. Um, but I can give you many, and I have actually um, uh, provided uh, many uh, um, examples, lots of evidence for the existence of cancel culture, not least the cancellation by the Democratic Socialists of America um, of a, uh, an event that uh, Adolf Reed Jr., an important critic of identity politics, was supposed to speak at because of his supposed class reductionism. Mm -hmm. He may well have a class reductionist perspective. In graduate school, some of my best friends were class reductionists. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, then argue against class reductionism, right? Or um, you know, maybe you, you will wish to uh, agree um, as somebody has said, you know, um, uh, perhaps we need class reductionism because reality is class reductionist. You know, I think that's a very naive thing to say um, from a philosophical standpoint, uh, but um, let's have a discussion about it, right? So I think, you know, cancel culture is a thing. And I do find the psychoanalytic um, perspective um, useful here in terms of the kind of Lacanian problematic of jouissance, the idea of a kind of pleasure that tips over into discomfort or even 
a certain kind of pain, um, which uh, one can understand in terms of a kind of self-sacrificing logic, right? That, that one feels compelled to participate in uh, this game of cancellation while knowing deep in one's heart that at some point one could oneself be canceled because there is no position of moral purity. We all have uh, desires and drives, uh, fantasies um, that are not pure. I mean, this is, the, this is the lesson, the fundamental lesson of psychoanalysis, isn't it? Um, and so what happens then if that, if that is revealed in some form of parapraxis? Uh, you know, one slips up and says something that one shouldn't have, or one likes um, a, uh, you know, a tweet that one should not have, or one follows somebody who then says something objectionable, and then one's discovered to have followed this person, and then is guilt, guilty by association. So, you know, you, you can see where, where the, the logic is pointing. The logic is pointing to the fact that, um, everybody in a sense is cancelable, right? right? And, and this is especially the case if we take a view of the present from the future. Think of our foibles today and how they might appear to a generation 10 years from now, 20 years, 50 years from now, um, who will be read, who will you know, be morally pure enough to withstand the logic of cancellation, assuming things go in this direction, right. um, uh, I, I rather hope that it doesn't go in this direction, but it, it, it very well could. So if you extrapolate this logic, um, then we will be uh, retrospectively uh, canceled. And so maybe we should just stop writing and thinking and talking because everything we do is morally suspect. I mean, that is the logic, isn't it? Definitely. And one might think in a sort of self-ironic um, state of reflection that the sort of world cancellation might have invited us to sort of, you know, think about why we desire these prohibitions on language. And so I really do appreciate um, the sort of psychoanalytic register for sort of going deep into this sort of opaque core of this this phenomenon because i don't think you know this the free speech discourse necessarily you know penetrates that sort of abstract aspect of it there's a certain opacity at play there that i don't think many of us want to really engage with because it's you know as mary rudy would put it you know the kind of bad feelings and so on that we love to avoid yeah yeah well the bad feelings that we we love to avoid but that we also love <laughs> yes, exactly. And and I think that what we're touching upon when we talk about cancellation, um, when it works in in the cultural realm, it it really is about a kind of, you know, um, uh, social death, a kind of reputational murder, and so on. Right. Um, but ultimately, what does it mean? The ultimate cancellation is, in fact, death itself. So there's a kind of, you could say, there's a death drive at work here. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I was getting to a bit earlier, uh, in terms of just this kind of the, the, the jouissance of, of cancellation is precisely this sort of, um, you know, repetition compulsion, right? right? 
that is beyond the pleasure principle. It, it is oriented to, uh, towards something that's very dark um, and very destructive, I think. Yes, and I really appreciate you shining light on that because it's been quite um, hideous to see, you know, really formidable public philosophers like Nina Power and others to be totally um, attacked in really um, sort of irrational and uncharitable ways. So, I mean, critique has to have some form of charitability. I mean, one can be ruthless Absolutely. and, you know, sort of recognize the worth of, of, of difference. So, Absolutely. Honing this critique as many people have fallen mute who should not have fallen mute, if I may say so. Yeah, no, agreed. And um, I mean, just the, the, the last point here, it seems that, um, you know, you, you, you do have figures like Adolf Reed Jr. is very powerful, you know, um, uh, figure um, uh, being canceled. But I, I think overwhelmingly, it's, it's women who yeah. are bearing the brand of this. And I think of Rebecca Tuvel. Um, I mean, notice the irony of the fact that philosophy is particularly um, uh, underrepresentative of the population in terms of gender balance, right? Um, and you have an assistant professor at the time who writes this piece for Hypatia um, uh, on you know, the, the possibility of transracial identity. Uh, and 800 plus uh, um, faculty, uh, including a, a, a former supervisor, uh, write a letter um, that demands the um, retraction of this of this article. I mean, this is potentially very damaging. I think she was fine. She came through unscathed. But boy, oh boy, talk about you know somebody's reputation and therefore future career on the line. Uh, you know, th this is absolutely unacceptable, really. No, I couldn't agree more. And as a student of philosophy at the time, I was um, utterly unsettled by the entire um, process or lack thereof of the, the Tuval uh, case and how philosophy was quite unwilling to really sort of deal with um, uh, the situation or address it in any sort of meaningful way. But um, yeah, I do. I am grateful that she was able to sort of hold her own and because other people have, have not had that sort of institutional support in the final analysis. So yeah, we, we don't have a short of, uh, kind of shortage of examples, I suppose. And you've drawn from, from, from quite a few. And uh, yeah, I do appreciate that. Um, but I wanted to return to a question or rather begin a question on a sort of article that you, talk, that you wrote for the um, LA Review of Books in 2020. And as the question of fascism or the sort of uh, concept has been on everyone's lips, one might appeal to analogy or periodization. And in some cases, one might whip out a template or a sort of checklist to say, you know, this is fascism, we sort of need it, you know, here's the checklist. Um, and, you know, some are wondering whether, you know, Trump is or is not a fascist. And that is a sort of question that you have taken up, if I understand correctly. And might the distinction that Alberto Toscano in a recent talk on new fascisms make, makes uh, between the temporalities of fascism be useful here, such that, you know, is our, is our current conjuncture a time of fascism or a time for fascism? Yeah, that's that's a really 
good question, and I have tremendous respect for Alberto's work, and I think his, his work on late fascism is, is very thought-provoking and, 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 uh, and fascinating. I, I touch upon it uh, in the introduction to Spectres of Fascism, but I don't maybe give it the, um, do it the justice it, it deserves. It is, after all, an introduction. Um, but I think that it's useful um, to, to think about temporality um, in this way, you know, of um, time for fascism, objective conditions, time of fascism, sort of subjective, and then um, the time sort of in fascism or in fascist, uh, fascist times. And, and I think he, his conclusion seems to be what, what um, distinguishes late fascism from the fascism of the um, the 20th century from the 1920s and, 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 and 30s. And, you know, of course, is arguing against this analogy that we, you know, we, we don't learn anything if, if we just simply say that, you know, we're back to a kind of Weimar moment. I think this is a really lazy way of thinking. So he, he rightly points this out. The, the analogy is not helpful. Um, so with, uh, with Ernst Bloch, he wants to try and think about the, the, the plural temporalities, you know, and, and his view seems to be that there was a kind of greater plurality of temporalities um, marking the unevenness of capitalist development um, in, uh, in the 20th century. Whereas what we, we find today is, is a, a, a greater um, a push to, to synchronize, uh, you know, uh, uh, what, what fascism today is oriented um, towards is a, is a fully synchronous temporality. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not so sure I agree with that. It might be the case in, you know, uh, in the global north, maybe in the United States, um, in Europe. Um, but uh, I'm, even, I'm, I'm even not sure that, that that's really uh, the case um, either. But, but let's say that it, it might function in, in, in the, 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 the global north. Um, it certainly cannot be said to function, though, in the global south. I mean, uh, I think if you look at um, Narendra Modi, for example, the attempted um, creation of, uh, of uh, um, uh, a, a kind of Hindutva um, uh, imaginary in India. So uh, India that is, that is essentially uh, a Hindu nation. So there is the, the you know the the, the claim uh, uh, that that Muslims and members of other religious groups were once Hindus who who were converted forcibly into these other religions, so they need to be reconverted back to Hinduism, or they they need to leave. So there's an attempted sort of purity, uh, you know, a politics of purity again, identity politics, you know, in in, in a certain um, register which is also interesting because it presents itself as sort of anti-colonial. Uh, it feeds off the post-colonial anti-Marxism of the subaltern studies group and so on. Because um, of course the, the Muslims were colonial colonizing force. The Mughals were, were, uh, were um, colonizing force. So there's a sort of blending of left and right tropes in, right. in, the, in, in, this, in this context. So my point is though, um, it's both a, you know, this sort of, hyper-modernizing language. Um, you, know, you see this with the, the legislation that has um, provoked such an enormous response from the, the, the Indian farmers, right? Um, that would um, uh, essentially uh, lead to a commodification of, 
uh, of, uh, of farmland uh, and, and, and so on and exacerbate the, 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 um, the already difficult situation of, of the agricultural sector and of the farmers in particular. Um, this is part of a kind of modernizing logic. So it's one that's very much oriented towards uh, you know, the future, sort of a kind of accelerationism, you could say, but it's one that's also very backward looking in terms of uh, uh, a refashioned Hindu identity. There, there's notions, uh, you know, that, that uh, kind of these ancient Ayurvedic remedies could be used now in place of certain forms of modern uh, um, medical science and, and so on. And I think the pandemic today in India, which is absolutely out of control, uh, it's catastrophic, has something to do with this deep ambivalence towards uh, modernity, right? You have market forces unleashed, but at the same time, skepticism of, of Western science and Western notions of human rights and so on. So that doesn't strike me, in other words, as a kind of synchronous temporality. Rather, it's one that's deeply contradictory. Um, so it would be an interesting discussion to have with Alberto. Yes, definitely. And um, I will share with listeners your, your article because I found the sort of um, distinction between a sort of post-human fascism, which you discuss at length, and a sort of um, uh, anti-humanism, uh, if that was the distinction. Mm -hmm. um, very interesting and not something that um, I've seen very often, especially with you see a sort of left-wing um, embrace of, of post-humanism and there really isn't a substantive enough critique um, this sort of bizarre uh, techno philia and fetishism that we're we're also finding on the left so mm. i think um yeah that's a definitely an interesting article that i will circulate with our listeners as well um and i just wanted to touch on a final question uh, regarding a recent and very interesting talk that you gave on Adorno and identity politics, where you discussed the successful strategy of right-wing populism and its identification with or as an aggressor, which seems to grant the illusion of having one's enmities represented in some meaningful way. And I think it would be great for us to sort of end on this point, like how does this implicate the left and how might we, in returning to our previous discussion on the desire to cancel, um, sort of abandon these prohibitions, um, you know, on language, you know, you've also said about, um, you know, the right engages in transgression while the left in moralism. So how can we sort of understand um, both this sort of, identification with the aggressor um, with right-wing populism and sort of the effect, I guess, on, on the left. Yeah, well, well thanks a lot. Um, I, I think that my theorizing of, of right-wing populism, populism more generally, uh, is, is indebted to the Frankfurt tradition, of course, uh, but in particular, um, this book by uh, Leventhal and, and Guterman um, called Prophets of Deceit. Mm -hmm. And in that book, uh, the authors, you know, essentially say that we can um, classify three different kinds of, you know, responses to a socioeconomic uh, situation, a crisis. And um, in that we can uh, isolate the, let's say, different 
uh, positions on the, the political spectrum, right? And so say that, you know, in the face of a socioeconomic crisis, you have the left, you have a kind of uh, revolutionary and a reformist um, uh, wing uh, of the left, um, both of which engage in a kind of an, a structural analysis of the uh, conditions of the crisis and its causes and articulate um, two distinct programs of action. You know, uh, of course, the, 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 the revolutionary um, uh, uh, wing of the left uh, wants a total transformation of, of society and what, what we were talking about earlier, right, in terms of um, a, um, uh, a, a, a destruction of, of, of class society, right, and a truly equitable um, distribution of power and wealth. Uh, the reformist uh, wing of the left, of course, uh, wants to ameliorate the conditions of inequality um, and um, the uh, conditions um, that, therefore, the conditions that lead to the sort of social unrest that is part of the, 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 the socioeconomic uh, crisis, right? So um, things like uh, um, uh, progressive taxation, redistribution of wealth, uh, protections for workers, uh, uh, trade union rights, and so on. So that's a reformist approach. Then they focus on the right-wing approach, which would be, you know, what we would call the kind of right right-wing populace, which is the, the agitators. And the agitators, rather than providing any kind of analysis of the um, uh, socioeconomic uh, crisis, try to identify certain scapegoats who are held responsible for it. I think this also reminds me of my uh, own experience in, um, or my own family's experience in, in Uganda in 1972. You hold the middleman responsible for condition of, uh, of, of crisis, uh, of an experience of inequality and uh, injustice, and, and you then you know, enact measures to deal with that particular community and those particular people. So that's exactly what the agitator does, right? And this is, think about the, um, the longstanding um, uh, uh, anti-Semitism in, 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 in Europe. Um, but more recently, we can think about um, uh, anti-Muslim uh, um, uh, perspectives and, and, uh, and, uh, and opinions and actions, right? It, Islamophobia is very, uh, very much alive and well. Now today, we, we're also talking about anti-Asian uh, violence, etc. cetera. Um, so what the agitator does is uses the discontent of the masses um, uh, to further its, further, his, and it usually is a male agitator, um, further his own particular uh, political agenda, right? So not pro pro providing any kind of uh, structural analysis, simply taking the discontent of the, uh, of the citizenry of the masses and stoking it and using it and manipulating it for political ends. This is how I see right-wing populism, which often has a, a, a highly visible um, uh, leader with a certain kind of contradictory charisma who, who does this. I mean, Trump was a master of this, right? And, and Trumpism hasn't gone away. So that's, that, that's the, the, the situation. And I think what has happened is that the left has gotten into this game of 
challenging at the level of identity, right, and anti-racism and so on, the position of contemporary or contemporary agitators, right? And they've sought to, in a way, harness or control or regulate the speech that comes from the agitator and the agitator's followers. But it hasn't done what it really should do, which is to provide a stru proper structural analysis of the socioeconomic crisis. Right. And in neoliberalism, crisis is, as I pointed, uh, pointed out elsewhere, it is chronic rather than acute. It's not just a discrete event, but it has been generalized. It's, the con it's really the oxygen upon which neoliberalism um, uh, feeds. So the crisis today of uh, uh, the political crisis of um, deepening right-wing authoritarianism has to do with not the strength of the right per se, but its ability to mobilize uh, a socioeconomic crisis to its own ends by blaming certain uh, uh, groups. And there is no countervailing uh, force from the left to challenge this narrative adequately and to provide a different sort of analysis of the need for structural transformation, right? There's a real failure there. And it has to do, again, with my discussion of class earlier. There's a real reluctance to address in a structural way class, which means also capital, and it, that also means the value form. Um, so I think that uh, this is very much part and parcel of the conditions, um, you know, uh, uh, of you know, in a sense, the this is the, the, the these are the dimensions of the time for fascism, as it were, and the time of fascism. The kind of objective conditions of crisis, the 9/11 and uh, the 2000, uh, 2007-2008 financial crisis. I think bookend this in some way, or they don't bookend it because we're still living through it. But there are two central moments. Of, of, of our crisis today. So that's, you know, um, uh, at the time for fascism. The time of fascism has to do with a paucity of real um, left alternatives. Right. And so again, the left is just preoccupying itself far too much with trying to regulate manifestations, let's say symptoms of, you know, uh, of fascism, rather than providing real alternatives mm -hmm. to its political agenda, you know? And I think um, that seems to be ongoing really with the, the defeat of Bernie um, in, in the last um, uh, uh, round of um, uh, the sort of nomination uh, uh, battle um, uh, um, with Biden, I think, you know, it's just an ongoing sense of that, 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 that problem. Yes, and thank you for that. And I hope that uh, those who are listening to our conversation today, students, scholars, you know, anybody who happens to be interested in in these issues and um, you know some of their you know what remains to be seen, the resolve. I hope um, our conversation can be taken as a sort of call to action, and you know that action includes you know the hard work of thinking, which many of us yeah. need to sort of maybe take a pause between the interval and the act, um, as Simone Bay would say. Absolutely, I just wanna reinforce that point. It's such a good one that um, increasingly we must regard thinking as a political act, 
because certainly unthinking is deeply political in so far as it depoliticizes people. So thinking is a political act that actually can lead to, uh, to um, real political engagement. Certainly, and um, at least at PICT, we, we certainly believe this wholeheartedly. So thank you so much, Samir, and uh, for the riveting discussion. And um, yeah, I look forward to your upcoming um, books and talks and uh, engagements. So thank Thanks. you. Thanks very much for, for having me. Terrific questions. I really, uh, really enjoyed uh, the discussion. Thank you for listening to The Object Lesson, brought to you by the Student Ambassadors of the Paris Institute. If you want to support our not-for-profit volunteer work, please consider becoming a member. You can find out more at parisinstitute.org. This is Emily Laurent Monaghan, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode.